Psalm 116. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted, and in my dismay I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Father, when we read this psalm, we read words of a man rejoicing in you. We read words of a man who knows peace. We read words of a man whose heart overflows with thankfulness. And Father, we pray that you will use this morning to make us men and women of whom that is increasingly true for ourselves. Amen. Welcome for those uh, who've joined since the beginning. My name is Matt Banks. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. And you join us as we uh, dip in for four weeks to four psalms. Uh, psalms between, uh, we started with 112 and we're going to finish with 118 next week. Oh, you are just stuck in the past. It's generally quite an insult, isn't it? If you, if you say that to someone in, in today's culture, you're just, you're just stuck in the past. What we tend to imply is that your, your present peace or thankfulness, your, your future peace or thankfulness is somehow thwarted because you just can't let go of something that's happened in the past. That's at the individual level. We may also say it at the sort of the corporate or institutional level. They're, they're an institution that is, that is stuck in the past. And what we mean by that is they are, they are living 
in light of a, a false reality. You may, of course, be here this morning and think that that is precisely what the church's problem is. It's stuck in the past. What I want to suggest as we read these exuberant words of the psalmists, he's not concerned about being stuck in the past. Indeed, I'm going to argue that his, his joy, his peace, his thankfulness is precisely rooted and foundational on the fact that he is happy to be stuck in the past. He is happy never to let go, never to lose sight of the wonderful thing that has happened to him in the past. The challenge is, I suppose, is can we, can we learn anything from him? Is that a good pattern for us in the Christian life, in life in general? Uh, or do we write him off? Let's, let's look at this man who is unashamedly stuck in the past. I was, I was so grateful for the way Jimmy read it because his, his joy and exuberance comes out as Jimmy read it. I mean, look at, look at how it starts. Verse one. I love the Lord. For he heard my voice, he heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. I want to suggest actually that verses 1 and 2 provide the the road map, if you like, for the whole of the psalm. Okay, so verse 1, and kind of halfway through verse 2, is is looking back. Verse 1 tells us that there is a past rescue in view, where the Lord heard the psalmist's cry and came to his rescue. So that's verse 1, in the past. And then verse 2 tells us that because the psalmist has experienced this rescue in the past, the psalmist has resolved for the whole of the rest of his life to keep crying out to the Lord in times of trouble. Do you see how verses 1 and 2 provide the past and the resolution for the future? And so that's how we're going to look at it in those two uh, points on your sheets. Open, open your Bibles up again if you close them. Page 615, Psalm 16. So we'll look at it in two sections. He heard my cry for mercy, therefore I will cry out to him. I will call out to him as long as I live. So this psalm is very obviously, as I said, the psalmist in the first instance joyfully recounting a rescue that the Lord has won for him. And the Lord heard this psalmist cry for mercy when he was ensnared in the worst of situations. Verse 3, the cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave came upon me, I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. The cords of death entangled me, what a grim image. I don't know, I don't feel like me, perhaps summer holidays if you're lucky, swimming out across that bay, and that little bit of seaweed kind of brushes your leg, and you get a little bit, oh, I'm a bit scared. Uh, yeah, few, okay, I'm not, I'm not the only one. Uh, <clears throat> here, but here he talks about not, uh, not slimy seaweed, but cords of death entangling him. He talks about the anguish of the grave. He talks about trouble and sorrow. And we don't know, we don't know precisely what rescue this is talking about. It's, it's wide enough, excuse me, that perhaps it could apply in a number of situations. The cry of a man with a wasting illness, perhaps. The prayer of an innocent languishing in jail. The call of a man whose family is breaking apart. The despair of a person in the dark mist of depression. The regret, perhaps, 
of a foolish decision. It's the cry of a man beyond worldly wisdom, the cry of a man beyond sort of trite self-help, a man beyond trying to sort himself out. You know, go and have a good night's sleep, it'll be better in the morning. It's not going to work. It's not going to wash for this person. And so verse 4, the psalmist does the only thing he can. Verse 4, then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, save me. An abject cry of helplessness from a man who can't help himself. And wonderfully, as verse 1 said, the Lord heard. So verse 6 we hear verse 6, the Lord protects the simple hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. The wonderful news the psalmist has realised is the Lord is the kind of God who saves the person who cries out in despair when they know they can't help themselves. And actually simple hearted there, verse 6, doesn't mean some kind of pious, pure, simple faith. Actually it is the word elsewhere in scripture that is translated as naive or scoffer, or foolish. You know, it is a great comfort to know that the Lord helps us and protects us when we're in trouble, not caused by ourselves. But verse 6 tells us it's even better because it says, the Lord is the kind of God who rides out to the aid of simple, foolish people whose trouble is their own doing. In one sense, of course, that, that should be no surprise, either to the psalmist or to us. So have a look at verse 5. It's the one that Stephen has quoted a couple of times in the service already. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. I mean, you hear that, and that echoes of Exodus 34 when the Lord declares his character to Moses. It's something that the psalmist would have known, but... Now he recounts the fact that he understands it, that it is real to him in a way that it hadn't been before. He cries out to the Lord, the Lord is gracious and righteous and answers him. And the result of this rescue is there, verses 7 and 8. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. He's there singing, it is well, it is well with my soul. He'd have been singing it louder than any of us if he was here this morning. Verse 8, For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. So here is this man now with his life uh, back on a stable footing, with his eyes still red, but now dry, with the turbulent waters of circumstances calmed. There is a peace that he enjoys as his soul rests. Verse 1 again, I love the Lord for he heard my voice, he heard my cry for mercy. Interesting actually, these Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, a bit of an aside, uh, they are are to this day still sung by the Jewish people when they celebrate the Passover. Uh, You know, Passover... Ten plagues, rescue through the Red Sea, pass over the time when God heard the cry of his people in slavery in Egypt and he rescued them from chains. These psalms are still sung every year by the Jewish people when they remember 
what God has done. And you can see, of course, why, why this psalm would be such a great choice to sing when you celebrate Passover. Why it would be such a great psalm to, to sing as you rehearse and you remember God's rescue in the past. In fact, some commentators ponder whether this psalm would have been sung at the very first Passover after the Jewish people came back from exile in Babylon. A time when, not just individuals, but a time when the whole nation could say, verse 1 together, I love the Lord, for he heard our voice, he heard our cry for mercy. So the psalmist looks back to the time when he called out to the Lord and the Lord answered. But this is not, this is not recollection for the point of nostalgia. We've said it all the way through, right from the beginning, that the logic of this psalm is there, is there in verses 1 and 2. You remember what happened in the past, and so you commit yourself to crying out to the Lord for the future. So, first point is, he heard my cry for mercy. Second point, therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Have a look at verse 9. That I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 9. Now actually, this is, this is one of those times where, where it pays to, to compare different translations of the Bible. Uh, because that, that, at the beginning of verse 9, sort of makes it sound as if it flows directly out of verse 8. But actually, that, that isn't there in the original Hebrew. <coughs> And there's, there's actually much more of a break between verses 8 and 9. And so other translations uh, sort of do justice to that. So in other translations you might have something like verse 8. For you, O Lord, have, in the past, delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And then verse 9 marks a turning point. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, verse 9 marks the switch from recalling what has happened in the past to the resolution, I will in the future live in the land of the living. I will in the future call on the Lord for as long as I live. See, broadly speaking, the the verb tenses change after verse 9. So I will walk with the Lord, verse 9. Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Verse 14, I will fulfill my vows. 17, I will sacrifice a thank offering. Verse 18, I will fulfill my vows. So we move from recalling what the Lord has done in the past to declaring intention for the future. But actually, almost as, a, as an aside, before we get to those, those future tenses of verses 12 to 19, we're going to dip back once more into the past, verses 10 and 11. So in verses 12 to 19, we're going to hear a man who, who's positive about what is to come. But verses 10 and 11 assure us that he's not living in some sort of deluded cloud cuckoo land. Verse 10, I believed, therefore I said... I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said, all men are liars. I don't know about you, I find that, I find that a slightly strange way of putting it. Uh, it's slightly strange to say, I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. All men are liars. It is a little bit weird to put it like that. But I think, I think the point the psalmist is making 
is that when you're afflicted, it is very easy to listen to the voices of untruth. It is very easy to listen to the to the lying whispers that come from other people, or, or even the lying whispers that come from your own heart. God's people in all ages who are afflicted will have heard such lies. God is not with you anymore. God is not able to help you this time. He's not concerned with your problems. You'd better look elsewhere for your help. And it takes faith to recognise those whispers as the lies that they are. See, we are to look back on God's rescue in the past. We are to call on him in the future. But verses 10 and 11 are a sobering reminder that doing so will often be amidst the clamour of those who want to slander God's character and cause us to doubt. And so it is with a sober and not a naive confidence that the Lord turns, um, that the psalmist turns verse 12 to his confident declarations for the future. And he poses this question, and it's a great question. The Lord has rescued him wonderfully and decisively. Verse 12, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? And what a wonderful question. The answer is even more wonderful. You see, one wrong answer, <clears throat> I suppose, would be to think that he needed or, or indeed he could do something to pay God back. You know, one wrong answer would be to think that, well, God delivered me in the past and now I must try and earn my way out of his debt. And there may be some here this morning who think the Christian life is that kind of quid pro quo. Lord, you scratched my back, now what can I do for you? And actually on a casual reading of this psalm, words in verse 14 like vows and words like sacrifice in verse 17 could, could lead us in that direction to think that it's about paying the Lord back. So you have a look at verse 13. Uh, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Verse 17, I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. See, we could take this as a description of a religious man eager to discharge a debt. But that would be totally to misread what is going on. Here is the psalmist appearing with and before God's people in the tabernacle or temple. Not not to pay down a debt but to make offerings, as verse 17 puts it, of thankfulness. And to state his resolve to keep calling on the Lord. See, when God has acted decisively in the past to rescue you, how do you repay him? Well, you repay him in exuberant thanksgiving and by resolving to keep trust in him. That is, you say, when, when you know that God saved you in the past... You resolve to keep trust in him in the future. You resolve to keep asking him for help. See, to try and actually pay God back in any other way would be to dishonour him. In fact, actually, to try and pay God back by paying down a debt would would display uh, a certain pride. So imagine, uh, imagine a thirsty man who's been out out all day walking walking in the hills. Uh, he's still a little way off uh, the village where he's staying. 
uh, and, and he's, he's actually sort of on, you know, on the red line, close, close to heat stroke or something like that. He's been walking all day. And then suddenly he rounds the corner and there is this glorious, gushing, gurgling, bubbling clear mountain stream. And he drops to his knees, fills his water bottle, uh, and sinks, sinks a pint of this glorious water. And then he walks the, uh, the rest of the one and a half miles back to the village. What kind of man, what would it say about that kind of man if, if he came back to the stream the next day with two bottles of Volvic mineral water and just said, stream, I just, I just, thanks for yesterday. I just wanted to, I just wanted to pay you back. I don't like being in anyone's debt. So here's some, here's some water back. I mean, it'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? You don't, you don't honor that stream by doing that. You don't express your thankfulness to the stream by doing that. You just show that you're, uh, you show a, a, such a pride that doesn't want to be put in anyone's debt. No, the way you, the way you're thankful to the stream, as it were, for, for the rescue of the previous day is by, is by telling your fellow travelers about that stream, by rejoicing in that stream, by going to it again and again when you need it. And that is the attitude of the psalmist here. God has rescued him in the past. And what he tends to do to, to repay God is nothing more, nothing less than continuing to call on the Lord in times of trouble. So for the psalmist, it is a glorious thing to be stuck in the past. As he looks back to God's decisive rescue, the result is thankfulness in the present. And a resolved, peaceful trust to keep on calling out to the Lord for the future. As a precious, uh, knowing, verse 15, that God's saints are precious in his sight. Knowing that for one who is God's servant, there is always help from the Lord. So the Lord heard my cry in the past. I will... Honour the Lord, I will glorify the Lord, I will show my thankfulness to the Lord by keeping on calling out to him in the future. That is the life of the psalmist and, and that is to be the life of the Christian. Because every Christian person here this morning knows of what this psalmist is speaking. See, we heard the psalmist cry out in, the, in utmost despair in the early verses. But isn't, isn't the very definition of a Christian someone who has cried out from, from utmost despair? Not everyone because of illness, not everyone because of financial pressures or relationship crises. But actually, you know, It may be those things, but certainly every Christian, even if it takes a psalm like this to remind us, every Christian has cried out in despair at their sin. That is the definition of a Christian. Every Christian has cried out in despair at their sin. Every Christian has cried out in despair at the cords of sin, the cords of death that entangled them. Every Christian has cried out in despair because they realise that those cords were not going to be loosened by a little bit more moral fibre or by trying to pull our socks up. Every Christian has cried out in despair because they realise that left to our own devices, those, those cords of sin would, would suck us down to hell. Every Christian has cried out 
oh Lord, save me. Save me from sin. And every Christian is a person who knows that the Lord heard that cry. Because every Christian is a person who looks to Jesus dying on the cross and says, thank you, that was for me. So every Christian is a person who looks back on the most decisive of rescues in their life when they cried out to the Lord for forgiveness. And just like the psalmist, every Christian is to look back and then on the basis of what they see in the past, look to the future. So have a listen to what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So the argument there in in Romans is, do I I realise that God gave his son to me? Do I realise that Jesus took the punishment I deserve on the cross? Do I rescued that, do I realise that I was thereby rescued from sin and hell? Do I think that God is going to do all of that and then somehow deny me anything else good? Of course not. Do I think that God is going to give me of his, give me his son and then say oh no I'm not, I'm not going to help you in this next situation I'm not going to use that next situation for your good I'm not going to use that situation to, to uh, shape and form your character and bring you at last into my presence in the new heavens and the new earth no of course not you look to the past you see what God has already done for you and given you his son and you trust that there is going to be nothing good that he withholds from you in this life or the next. Not that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean look to the past, see that Jesus died for you, and then pray for a Ferrari and it's yours. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean look to the past, see that in Jesus God has proved beyond doubt that he is committed to you, and then can continue to cry out to him in the present and in the future. Continue to trust him. Continue to look to him for help because he's proved that he is committed to your good and that leads us as we finish to these two quick observations about how for the Christian being stuck in the past far from being detrimental to our present peace and thankfulness is actually like the psalmist the foundation of it So I want to suggest, uh, it's pretty obvious from what we've said already, but just to crystallise it, I want to suggest this. Our peace will be proportional to our appreciation of the past. Our peace will be proportional to our appreciation of the past. See, when we cry out to the Lord for help in future situations, we're effectively saying, Lord, I trust you to help me in that situation. And all of us, though we struggle, all of us who are Christian, though we struggle, will know that peace, you know, fleetingly often, but we will know that peace. We've had glimpses of that peace that comes from when we genuinely do rest and trust in the Lord. But according to the logic of Psalm 116 and Romans 8, we, we will cry out in trust to the Lord for the future only to the extent that we appreciate the magnitude of his rescue for us in the past.
And what does that mean in practice? Well, for me this week, uh, as I've been, uh, as I've felt sort of uh, at any time sort of waves of anxiety begin to ripple about something coming up, perhaps a sermon I've got to prepare for Sunday or whatever, whatever it is for you, when I feel my peace kind of wobbling, when I feel my trust in the Lord ebbing away, I've tried, I've reminded myself of what the Lord has done for me in the past by rescuing me. And I've cried out to him again for help with whatever thing the future uh, holds that I'm anxious about. And of course, with each answer to prayer, there will be a virtuous circle as we're encouraged to trust and trust more. So our peace will be proportional to our appreciation for the past. And also, I think our thankfulness will be proportional to our indebtedness. Our thankfulness will be proportional to our indebtedness. So each time we look back to the past, each time we trust God for the future and he faithfully provides for us, uh, our indebtedness to him grows. The religious person, the person with the kind of stiff upper lip, the person who likes to think they can do life on their own, who dislikes being weak, the person who is like the man pouring Volvic into the mountain stream. Well, he or she thinks they have to pay God back. The Christian, on the other hand, like the psalmist, looks back to the past and revels in the debt that he owes to God. The Christian looks back to the past and delights that there is nothing he can do to pay God back. The Christian looks back to the past and says, God, put me Put me more in your debt. Let me cry out more and again and continually and to the end of my days to you. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord in your midst, O church. Praise the Lord. Let us be people who who look back to the past and who are in awe of the Lord's rescue. And on the basis of that past rescue, commit ourselves to crying out to the Lord daily for as long as we live. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are the mountain stream. You are the one who needs nothing. You are the one who is from himself. You are the one who owes no one anything. You are the one in whose debt we gladly stay. Heavenly Father, we praise you for saving us through the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us when we doubt that you could, you could do that, but yet not provide for us day by day. Awe us again by the magnitude of your past rescue and make us people who cry out to you for as long as we live. Amen.